For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The state Supreme Court says it will take up a legal challenge on whether a recreational ballot measure will go on the November ballot. However, justices won't take up the case until after a 10-day protest period for state question 820. The challenges stem from an apparent delay by the state to keep the measure from the general election. Ryan, as a senior advisor for the group Pushing 820, what are your thoughts on this decision? You know, our team is very optimistic about the court's order in this case. Uh, I think that, you know, if the court had wanted to, if they had felt inclined, they could have just, you know, killed this thing in the crib. Uh, And we would have been done on Monday or Tuesday of this week. And, you know, the campaign would have been looking at uh, a special election date or a November 2024 date as, as the latest election. And I just want to be clear with our listeners that if we don't end up on the November 2022 ballot, we are still alive. The over 117,000 valid signatures and then the 165,000 plus signatures that we turned in will still be valid for those elections. Um, however, we turned these signatures in on July 5th. You have plenty of time for the state to uh, do a responsible count to verify the signatures. The count took over seven weeks. And then we ended up in a situation where the secretary of the election board was saying that August 26th, close of business, was his deadline. That was the deadline by which he had to know what was going to be on a ballot in order to print it. Now, the issue is that date is nowhere in law. There's no statute that says that. There's no rule that says that. And it's not in the Constitution. And so our argument is that Article 5, Section 3 of the state Constitution, uh, said, which says that it shall be on the next general election ballot, Uh, that should hold. I mean, if the legislature had wanted to create a new date, they could. The only statutory deadline says that absentee ballots must be mailed no fewer than 45 days before the election. Got to make sure that those get to servicemen and women Mm -hmm. overseas. That's a date much later in September, much later this month, which it's, you know, nuts that it's September already. (laughs) But the, you know, just for folks keeping track timeline, the publication uh, happened earlier this week and the 10 business days, and you got to throw Labor Day in there. Uh, Our belief is that the 10 business day protest period will expire on September 14th. I think that the, the court uh, and, uh, you know, has plenty of time to resolve any and all protest and give the election board plenty of time to be able to print ballots and make sure that 820 is a lot, you know, that the people are allowed to decide this important decision in November without any undue delay. Neva. Well, I think you're, all that you've described is certainly accurate. And I think the fact that the court left the, left the door cracked open, even though the vote was uh, five to four on the matter, I think that uh, the real, to me, the target deadline of September 23rd, that uh, the absentee ballots have to go in the mail, have to go overseas so that the military folks have the uh, ample opportunity to uh, be able to vote in the November 8th election. That's the critical piece to this. But you're right, Ryan, there certainly uh, seems to be every indication that uh, this has an opportunity to still move forward and perhaps make the November 8th ballot. But I think there's uh, uh, certainly there appears to be a lot of interest in it not being on the ballot. I think politically, I mean, folks on both sides, as we've talked about before, you can make the arguments of who this would favor in terms of other folks on the ballot. Uh, would they like to see this state question on on the ballot as well? And I don't, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I think uh, I, I think you could hypothesize either way. So uh, bottom line is we need resolution, we need the ballots printed, and we need to move on with the November 8th election. And, and coming out of this, we need some reforms. I mean, I, I think that this, this process has taught a lot of lessons, not the least of which if the state's going to pick an outside vendor. That vendor has been selected for over a year now. You know, they should have been doing tests. They should have been ready for this. And so I think that that's one thing. 
I think that there, you know, the legislature ought to consider deadlines that say if proponents turn in an initiative by a certain time, that the state will make sure that it ends up on a ballot. Um, you know, those are those are the kind of reforms that I imagine can get bipartisan support because whether you're you know for or against a particular ballot measure depends on the ballot measure. We we you know we might all be there uh, at some point ideologically, and it's just good to be able to walk into these things with certainty, especially when. The, you spend a lot of money to get these things on the ballot. Everybody thinks that it's easy to get an initiative on the ballot, or at least they think it's easy at the Capitol. I mean, we spent over $2 million just to collect signatures uh, in the period of time that we did. Well, and I think Justice Rowe in his dissent, I mean, made the point that there was not clear direction really how to move move forward on this in terms of what, what had to happen uh, to the prescribed timeline and the specific deadline uh, to let the troops vote and to be able to get those ballots in the mail uh, in late September. Mm-hmm. The State Board of Education refused to listen to an appeal from Tulsa and Mustang Public Schools in an attempt to change their accreditation downgrade. This all stems from the board's move after allegations the schools had violated House Bill 1775, banning education on race and gender issues. The move has prompted responses from Republican lawmakers from Mustang who believe institutions should be allowed due process to challenge the board's decision. Neva, should the board have heard the schools? Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, I think there are so many questions now on this. And certainly now lawmakers have been drawn into it because they represent these folks uh, back in their home districts. And when you have the Mustang schools, you have the Tulsa schools uh, have this uh, have this issue now at the forefront. Um, it's clear that it's going to spill over into the legislative session. And frankly, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that when you have highly charged uh, bills like this that come become law, they have to be well-crafted pieces of legislation or they become just wide open for these kinds of problems that uh, we see riddled right now with the State Board of Education. Right. I mean, I, I think that that's right. If if the legislature wants to do something like uh, about, you know, what they think of critical race theory or whatever that may be, um, you need to define it. I mean, you, you need to make sure that the teachers understand, you know, what they need to do to comply with the law, whether you agree with it or not, you got to let them know this isn't what you have to do to comply with the law. Administrators need to know. Uh, and then the State Board of Education should know. You know, my sense is that they didn't allow this appeal because if you have an appeal and the State Board of Education is in a position of trying to explain what the heck 1775 means, I don't think that they can explain it. So this saves them the opportunity or the uh, the potential of having to try to explain that and not being able to define it themselves. Well, and the issue of they were going to do one thing for Tulsa and then they figured that, well, because we did this in the Tulsa Public School District, we need to also go ahead and do the same for the Mustang School District. I mean, I think that became precarious as well in terms of, uh, you know, is there... Um, is there a real logical explanation for what is going on and why, or is this just politically charged uh, by the makeup of the board? And I think that's one of the issues that uh, certainly we already see that some of the uh, litigations being amended to infuse some of this conversation in that the folks at Mustang and at Tulsa have have drawn in as a result of this last meeting. Well, and, and throw into that that uh, that Ryan Walters uh, has now come out and you know, Secretary of Education, uh, candidate for Superintendent of Public Instruction. You know, he came out yesterday saying, or earlier this week, saying that um, he sh- the state board should go after the teaching certification uh, for the teacher in Norman. And just to be clear, that teacher resigned. Uh, Ryan Walters initially said that they were fired. They weren't fired. They, re- they resigned. 
Um, but the, Ryan Walters wants to go after this person's teaching certification uh, simply because they shared a QR code that led to the New York Public Library uh, list of banned books. Uh, and, you know, that kind of political warfare on educators is really frightening. Uh, I think that it sets a terrible precedent. Um, and, you know, if, if a Democrat were going after a Republican teacher this way, I'd, I'd be saying the exact same thing. This is a poor precedent. And it, it really, um, you know, gives me pause to think about what it would be like for him to be in an elected position for four years, waging war on teachers. As a parent of public school uh, children, you know, I, I think of all the things that we need to be dealing with, and it makes me wonder, does Ryan Walters walk into a school and just you know, think about you know, what do we need to do to you know, police children's genitalia and then you know, turn in and end the, uh, the careers of what he calls you know, liberal activist teachers? And frankly, I think that his attack is really more attack on the political beliefs, the private uh, political beliefs of this teacher, and less about the QR code that she shared. And that verges on a First Amendment violation. I, I suspect that, you know, that kind of rhetoric that he's using, that he just thinks that he can throw around, he is a state official, he's a state actor, uh, and that puts him and the state in legal jeopardy whenever he makes uh, claims like this. Well, and we have nine weeks to go in this campaign, mm -hmm. and the, and this is the backdrop that we are going to see now in terms of uh, the education being at the forefront of every major election in the state, and it will and it will trickle down into the legislative races and what uh, what happens in terms of the conversation uh, for these folks that are out campaigning uh, in the general election. So I think the governor, we see the governor's race set up, the education being a pivotal pivotal uh, topic, and certainly certainly someone who's going to be the next superintendent of public instruction, that is uh, paramount in this overall conversation. So it's going to be a lot of hard swinging, I think, on both sides, and not going to stop until Election Day um, by anybody's estimation. The State Board of Education adopted new rules for dealing with schools who fail to comply with the state law banning transgender bathrooms. Schools will be notified if they are in violation of Senate Bill 615 and given 15 days to request to appear before the board. Ryan, what's the reaction from people on this move by the board? Well, first, I think it's important to point out that this is a move about process, that this was a vote about uh, how the State Board of Education would deal with the due process rights of schools that are said to have violated uh, this new law. And so how you know, a school could appeal, uh, which, again, you know, we talked about just a moment ago, uh, states appealing uh, trying to appeal their violations of 1775. And then you've got the governor's uh, handpicked state board of education even denying the appeal, even the right to be heard out. So, you know, hopefully, at least with, with this law, maybe we'll have a process in place that guarantees schools greater due process rights. So if they are accused of some sort of a violation, um, you know, when we do get to the substance of this, which the state board of education has not done yet, Joy Hoffmeister is very clear this was about the process not about the substance. I think that when we do get to the substance of this, uh, again, it's just the amount of wasted time and energy and, uh, you know, just hyperbolic political rhetoric that we hear that is just in a total different universe uh, than what most people uh, experience whenever they work in a public school or whether they're sending their kids to a public school. Um, you know, the, the idea that uh, school administrators or personnel should be, you know, policing 
uh, you know, what kids have in their pants versus, you know, where they're going to the bathroom. I mean, if there's an issue with, with any sort of a problem, I mean, just deal with that. I mean, you can deal with these things as they come up, but the idea that you know, we have to you know, put administrators and teachers in this really terrible situation of policing students that are going to the bathroom and then making students feel policed going to the bathroom. I mean, this is, you know, just bizarre, uh, you know, times infinity. And it's, it's strange that when we think about the education debates and the real issues in education, how they're not getting talked about this election cycle, it's because, you know, trash like this has really taken up the airwaves. Neva? Well, I think it is important to note that the, uh, the Board of Education, what they did do is they did this action unanimously in terms of setting up so that there is a process, so that there is something uh, that, that, that there seems to be full agreement on, and that is an important point. Right. I mean, we're going to have the slugfest over the issue itself and, the, and, and all of the ancillary uh, issues and topics that come up, but for the, for the board, from a legal standpoint, from a process standpoint, to be able to put this in place clearly so that there's no, you know, there's no uh, uh, question at all, I think that was a significant uh, matter that took place at that meeting. And it's, you know, and that's tough to explain, you know, to, to onlookers, right? I mean, I think that that unanimous vote, you know, some people may have you know, seen that as an affirmation of this bill. Uh, and I don't think and that, think, that was the I case. Think it Superintendent was. Hoffmeister, think, yeah, who, who you yeah. would not expect necessarily to yeah. be siding with uh, this group of uh, the governor's appointees on the board right now, I think she made her point yep. clear that why this was taking place, and mm-hmm. at least from her uh, point of view, uh, and and articulated that. So I think uh, I think you're right. I mean, normally you know, we would see, and I think we'll conti- continue to see a real split opinion on that board in terms of. Uh, where they move forward, the issues and what they think are important and how they're going to dis, you know, how they're going to deal with them um, is going to be something that people are going to be paying a lot of attention to uh, all the way through this election. Opponents of a turnpike expansion in Norman held a protest at a $1,000 per plate fundraising luncheon for Governor Stitt. About 20 protesters from the anti-turnpike organization Pike Off OTA says they feel betrayed by the governor, with some of them as registered Republicans saying Stitt has lost their vote in November. Neva, should the governor be listening to these groups? Well, I mean, you're going to have opposition groups on any number of subjects. I mean, this has been a group that has organized. They've been very vitriolic, very passionate about what's going on. And yet uh, the bottom line is there seems to be little traction gained uh, in terms of fighting this uh, 800-pound gorilla with the, with the Turnpike Authority. Uh, we, we've seen protests in the past. If we remember, uh, uh, we had a, a lot of this same type of uh, discourse, a lot of protests that went on uh, with folks in Luther and some of the uh, communities uh, where the Turnpike went through several years ago. So I think we always see this when we, when we have these Turnpike conversations. But bottom line is, uh, this is something that uh, will go through a legal process and and we'll see if there's uh, uh, any capacity for them to make any headway uh, against what seems to be uh, full steam ahead on the turnpike side. Right. Well, I mean, this is a classic uh, case of the the political uh, uh, example of, of NIMBY, uh, not in my backyard. And you know that the question for this group doesn't really seem to be though. You know, not in my backyard. Ever, never. Uh, don't even think about it. But just weighing, like, is this necessary? Is this turnpike necessary? Does it actually bring in the revenue that the state says that it's going to bring in? Because if you look at past projections for turnpike revenue, you know, they only hit about sixty percent of what they've sold the state on. And you know, is it really necessary to relax? Uh, traffic on I-35, will it do that? 
I mean, there's the concept of induced demand that if you build it, people will drive on it. So the, the idea that we just build enough roads and, and we can you know, solve our future traffic problems. I mean, drive through uh, uh, North Dallas uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon and tell me if more roads means less traffic. It just doesn't. So the, the most impressive thing about this group, and I saw them at the state capitol earlier this session, they came up to the capitol, had a, an enormous, you know, very loud uh, rally in the state, rotunda, state capitol rotunda. And the thing that struck me about the group was you could walk through there and you would see people with, with MAGA hats on and you'd see people from the Sierra Club and Norman and they're all together. Um, and, you know, what what a wonderful thing in 2022. Uh, I love working on these political issues or just wa- witnessing political issues that really transcend political lines. You know, with you know working on marijuana, we're working with Republicans and Democrats, libertarians, independents. And I think the same is true with this group. Um, and you had Republicans quoted in the journal record saying, I voted for Stitt four years ago. I'm not voting for him now. Um, I, I think that those kinds of sentiments, yeah, the, the governor may be steadfast in like, I'm going to you know, direct the turnpike authority. I'm not going to do anything to upset this plan. But at the very least, he needs to be talking to these folks because you're, you're talking about a, a, a group that doesn't just fit neatly into kind of the political buckets that we have right now. And I think that those groups are the ones that uh, have the, the most chance of having some a variable impact on the outcome of elections this well, fall. Well, and I think this is a classic case of the old political adage, all politics is local. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. when you start bringing it down to the local level, you get folks that are neighbors and friends and coworkers and go to church together, and you get them mobilized of, with a common goal. It's a whole different deal than just kind of what we consider kind of classic partisan politics with the activists who predictably come out for anything that's party related in their in their area. So I think that uh, it's been fascinating. I mean, if if they're getting traction uh, to the degree that uh, you would say, looking at their social media, if, if they have 8,000 folks on uh, their Facebook, I mean, that's that is not a small number or inconsequential in terms of a local issue that's beginning to get uh, a little bit of traction, at least at the local level. Again, what we're talking about in terms of the reality is these projects that are that are five years in the making. Mm-hmm. They're forecast long beyond what uh, just is going to happen today or tomorrow or next month. And I think to be able to have the staying power to fight that fight for the distance, that's where many of these these folks really fall short, and and understandably so. A conservative group is calling on Oklahoma lawmakers to rethink its opinion on capital punishment. Only a few hours after the state put James Coddington to death, the group Oklahoma Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty held a press conference at the state capitol. Ryan, what is this organization trying to accomplish? Well, I think that you're beginning to see uh, some bipartisan skepticism toward the death penalty. And, and it's something that I think has been a long time in the coming, and we've needed it in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, some of these conservatives, uh, you know, Representative Kevin McDougal, uh, for example, who has really been a, an outspoken advocate for Richard Glossop and trying to save Richard Glossop's life. But in, the, in, in, in so doing, he's also raised the issue of, does Oklahoma's capital punishment system work? I mean, one, can we do it effectively? And two, can we make sure that we're not executing innocent people? Um, you know, and that's raised a lot of questions with him. And I think that that kind of introspection and the influence that he's had with his colleagues in the legislature uh, have really begun to change the, the, uh, the dynamics around the death penalty. It used to be you know, uh, if you looked at the Capitol and you surveyed legislators, or even if you surveyed Oklahomans, uh, you know, death penalty uh, matters went 
you know, pretty squarely down party lines. But even then, you'd have a lot of Democrats that would support it. And you're looking at more, much more liberal uh, Democrats and then maybe some, uh, some conservatives that are Catholic and consider themselves pro-life across the board. But I think that the, the coalition for folks that are just raising questions about uh, Oklahoma's capital punishment system is growing. Uh, I think that that's important. You know, for far too long, uh, we have just given the state the authority to carry out these executions, which is the most ultimate power that any government can ever exercise is to take the life of one of its citizens. And uh, we've looked at that and, and given maybe we've become indifferent to it. We don't see it. It doesn't affect us that much. But, you know, as more and more of these stories come out and lack of transparency, I think that we'll um, do we see an, a point in the near future where executions are abolished in the state of Oklahoma. I don't think that that's the political outcome here, but I do think that we get to a point where executions are, are fewer and rarer uh, and they become the exception rather than you know something that we deal with where an attorney general has to set a slate of 20 executions at a time. Neva. Well, first of all, the slates of 20 at a time or whatever it's going to be is because of the fact that we've had the the, the backlog as a result of what what we had holding for a while in terms of the issue being moved through the for the through the process. But here's the here's the thing in terms of your issue of can it be done effectively? Yes, I mean we we saw that uh, this this week. Uh, can it uh, can it be done? Uh, um, with with thoughtfulness, yes. I mean, we had an instance where this particular individual 25 years ago beat his friend to death with a hammer uh, because he, he was a cocaine addict and beat him to death because he wanted money to buy more drugs. I mean, this is the man that was on death row. And as the attorney general said, justice was carried out and it was, uh, it was done uh, with the seriousness that it's intended. I mean, no one takes lightly uh, the death penalty being imposed, a jury taking that into consideration and giving uh, someone the death penalty or the number of years that someone sits on death row before ultimately that uh, sentence can be carried out and uh, the lethal inje- injection uh, be administered. So I, no one, I don't, I don't think there's any question about the seriousness of the matter, but I do believe, as we've talked about countless times on the show, we do have uh, a reason to have the death penalty, and I think Oklahomans uh, have overwhelmed through decades said that this should be an option. It should be preserved for the most heinous of crimes. And I think that uh, in these instances, the the folks on death row do uh, fit that criteria without much, uh, in in my estimation, without much uh, a debate. But, you know, the, on this case with uh, James Coddington, the Pardon and Parole Board had recommended clemency to uh, move his sentence to, from death to life without parole. The governor ignored that. And, and this is, you know, for the most part, uh, a partner pro board that this governor has picked himself. Uh, and if at the point that you're not going to take their recommendations after they've looked at these cases and they didn't come to this decision lightly, they came to it. One of the, you know, looking at some of the uh, what DOC, Department of Corrections personnel, had been saying that once Mr. Coddington had uh, been incarcerated long enough to uh, be away from his addiction, to not be addicted, he became a model inmate. I mean, he began helping other inmates uh, you know, succeed uh, and became a mentor and was a, a radically different person than the person he was whenever in uh, the throes of his addiction, he murdered his friend. I'm not excusing that at all, but he's a very different person. And I think as a society, these are, these are questions that we need to ask ourselves. And maybe a majority of Oklahomans say it doesn't matter if you reform yourself, you know, whether it's, you know, 10 days after or 20 years after you're going to get what's coming to you. But I also think that a lot of Oklahomans look at that situation and think, 
boy, I'm, I'm, I'm just a totally different person. What's it feel like to be held account in the ultimate way for, for that kind of, uh, you know, time span? And I, I just, I think that these questions are going to be more nuanced and more detailed. Uh, and that's certainly a result of the bipartisan nature of people that are asking these questions and leading these conversations. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at kosu.org.